Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel, and I'm a member of The Thought Hackers. With me today is a woman by the name of Marissa Peer. Marissa is a world-renowned speaker, rapid transformational therapy trainer, and best-selling author. She has nearly three decades of experience as a therapist and has been named Best British Therapist by Men's Health Magazine and featured in Tatler's Guide to Britain's 250 Best Doctors. Marissa uses her experience of treating clients including rock stars, CEOs, elite Olympic athletes, royalty, and Oscar-winning actors to inform her life-changing speeches and lectures. She has been voted Best Speaker at numerous conferences including the Mastermind Group London, and the Women in Business Super Conference, Awesomeness Fest 2015, and the Royal Society of Medicine. In 2015, Marissa launched her Marissa Peer Method School, teaching her unique method for the first time to audiences in London, Canada, the US, and Australia. Thanks for joining me, Marissa. Oh, you're so welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, so just picking up on where we we're chatting a bit before the what really intrigues me is how you got started to uh, where you are now is obviously very powerful what you're able to do is very quick and life-changing but the real question I have and I'm sure many of our audience members will be thinking the same thing is how did you get started well it was really working out you know I always had could always put my clients into three categories the ones who just aren't making it no matter how hard they try the others who are making it but they're paying quite a high price they suffer with ill health or their relationships don't work because their job is too stressful and there was always a third group who had everything blissfully happy long marriages really successful career made a lot of money but also very happy went to the gym ate right and I realized very quickly, because I was looking at what do these people do, it wasn't about mirroring them, it was really paying attention. And I noticed that they, they just dialogue with themselves in a totally different way. You know, I mean, when I was training, it was all about communication skills, and your communication skills will make you successful or not. But I realized that actually it's, it's how you communicate with yourself. And I did a TED talk on that and the ability to communicate very effectively with yourself in a very up-to-date way is what me- makes people fail or succeed. And so I started to teach it to my clients and actually even wire it in using hypnotherapy to just ban them from doing, oh, I can't do that part and that's a nightmare. And then I started to teach other therapists, look, you know, you don't need to see people for 20 sessions. You need to really narrow down what's going on. And if you narrow it down, you can fix someone in two sessions. And and now I've just got my program, RTT is just about to go into the whole school system in part of California because it's even having a powerful effect on students, getting them to see that if you communicate better with yourself, your whole life is dramatically better. That makes complete sense. So what what did you discover? Or more actually two questions. What what did you discover and when you go into the California system, what is the first thing you teach them? 
So what I discovered is my clients who were unhappy would come in and go, how was your week? A nightmare. Oh, my God, it was hell. And so I said, well, what was the hell? Well, I was in the store, you know, for an hour before I had to pay, and then my credit card wouldn't go through, and it was just hell. It was a disaster. And then I got stuck in the freeway traffic, and that was torture. And I'd noticed that people would use these very powerful words to describe ordinary stuff, traffic, hell, the store is torture, the boss is killing them, their boyfriend is driving them crazy, their kids are making them insane. And I was having to say to them, look, you know, if you keep saying to yourself, my job's killing me, my job's killing me, you know what your mind's job is, it's to keep you alive against what were once not great odds. And when you keep saying, my job is killing me, your mind says, I, I gotta get you away from that place that's killing you. It appears to be your work, so I'm just gonna give you an answer or migraines or colitis or anything that will get you away from that workplace that you keep telling me is killing me. Or you get people who go, yeah, well, my, my relationship ended, I died, that boy broke my heart into a million pieces, I, I'd rather be my own for the rest of my life than ever go through that pain. It would kill me if someone hurt me like that again. And of course they forget, but the mind doesn't forget. And so next time you meet someone, it makes you act out, act out, be difficult, because you've given it a very clear message, I'd rather die than be hurt again. But the place I really found it was with infertility, where we would come in and go, you know, I, I can't get pregnant. My doctor said I've got unexplained infertility, which means I have eggs and a womb and they work, but I cannot get pregnant and they can't explain why. And they always came up with the same stuff. Where are you? I'm 16. I think I'm pregnant. My dad's going to kill me. My mum's probably going to kill herself. This is a nightmare. My life isn't worth living. And then, of course, the day they discover they weren't, and they go, oh, happy days. This is, like, amazing. This is such joy. I'm not pregnant. And our mind, of course, to keep us alive, must always work out what hurts us and what doesn't. And when something hurts us, we become hardwired to avoid it for the rest of our life. And, and all of your listeners will be able to understand being made to eat something like liver when you're a kid or eggs that are cooked. And 50 years ago, I, can't, I cannot bear undercooked eggs that make me want to heave because I had to eat them when I was six. When was that? Oh, 50 years ago. But to this day, I cannot even look at eggs or I can't eat rabbit or I can't eat pigeon or, you know, I can eat lamb, but I couldn't eat fowl because the picture is so completely wrong. And since our mind only responds to the words and pictures, once you change those words and pictures, you change everything. Yes. I mean, a vegan, a vegan never wakes up and says, please, God, help me today not eat bacon. They have no problem resisting bacon. Someone on a diet wake up and say, I must today find a way to not eat cookies. Help me not eat cookies. And they come in and I ate six cookies. I said I wasn't going to have any. I've eaten even more than I would have, and I wasn't trying to eat them. Because when you keep saying, oh, I love cookies, or we call... You know, we call chocolate dream, don't we? Divine and heaven. Mm -hmm. And then and then we call, you know, things sunrise muffins and double, double chocolate chunk dreamy hot chocolate. And then our mind wants it because we use all these words and pictures. And successful people just use better words and pictures. And it really is that simple. So what do you do to get them to change 
what they're doing. I mean, what what you said actually about these words, I mean, this was a discovery I'd made in my own life a number of years ago uh, to do with some major problems that I had and noticing that the people around me would use the most violent, hateful, emotionally laden words to cause mental pain. And and I also realized, of course, I was doing it to myself, and I was saying, I need to change this in a very big way if I'm ever going to get better from it. And of course, if you talk to people who are depressed, I've got my black thoughts. I'm, I'm in darkness. I'm in despair. And, yep. you know, it's a horrible thing to be depressed. We're not belittling people who suffer with depression. But it isn't helped by them that everything is so black, and I've got the black cat and the black dog, and... They can't see a way out. Um, so it, it's interesting that we use language. Like for instance, if I was looking at a big steak right now, the way I feel about that steak has got nothing to do with the steak. If I'm a Hindu, I'll go, oh, that's terrible. That's a sacred cow. And no one should eat a sacred cow. If I'm a vegan, I go, that's disgusting because that was a living creature. And if I'm a meat eater, I go, oh, yummy. Look at this wagyu steak. How lucky am I that I'm going to eat it? So you can look at something and the way you feel about it is the pictures and words and nothing else, but that's very good news because then you get to see, oh, I can change the pictures and words like you and I could have a fear of shots and hate needles, but if you're in intense pain, you'll beg for that needle. Yes. You don't think about, the, think about the pain ending. You could go, I never take medicine, I don't believe in drugs. And one of my clients was saying that she didn't believe in any medication and decided to have a baby while her husband waved evil feathers around her head and banged a drum. And she was very excited about that till the labor began. And she went, I, need, I want to be numb from the neck down. I want every drug under the sun. I do not want this pain. And we change our mind very quickly when we're in pain. But what we don't understand is that when you're saying words like, this is killing me, I'm dying here. Oh, I'm, I'd die if that guy asks me out. I'd die if my boss um, looks at the work I've done. It's the same as real pain. Your mind's job is to get you away from it. And so it's really all about having people communicate better. And I would say to all my parents, look, you can talk to yourself however you like. You have freedom to choose to be negative or positive. It's up to you, but the thing you can't choose is the effect those negative words have on your body, what they do to you. So by all means choose to be negative, but I promise you, you're not going to be able to choose the illness that you invite upon yourself, the stress, the depression, the anxiety you go through when you are negative and pessimistic and say, I can't stand my kids. Even when go, oh, I wish I'd never had dogs, like I've got to walk them, it's so unfair. And I see that particularly with people who are very overweight and say, it's not fair, you know, why can't I eat whatever I want? I said, you can, you can eat whatever you want for the rest of your life if you're prepared to pay the price because most people, in fact, half the world can't eat what they want for all kinds of reasons, allergies, finances, supply, but most of us can't eat whatever we want. And, and we understand that. But when you bitch and moan about it, it just makes it even harder when you go, yeah, I can't eat. Like, you know, I'm a speaker. I would never drink a big latte and, and a smoothie if I go on stage because then I just need to pee. So I make a choice that before I'm speaking, I don't eat or drink anything. 
if I'm working with a client, I wouldn't eat loads of garlic the night before because that's not very professional to peer in someone's face and leave garlic fumes all over them. But you know, you, you got to make these choices. When you make them, this, this sentence you, any of your listeners can say that I promise you changes your whole life and it's this, I'm choosing to do this and I'm choosing to feel fantastic about it. I'm choosing to say no to cake and just have a piece of fruit instead and I'm choosing to feel so good about that because I'm choosing to look amazing in my jeans. I'm choosing to spend the whole weekend working on my business and I'm choosing to feel thrilled and elated by it because I've got my own business and I'm going to make it a success. When you go, it's not fair. I want cake and I can't eat it. It's not fair. All my friends are out in a bar and I've got to sit on my own and write this business plan and what your mind does is it says let me distract you you don't want to do that you told me you don't want to do it so i'm going to fill your head with what i know you do want cake going to the bar and procrastinating and no one teaches you and they really should that if you haven't got what you want your mind thinks you don't even want that and if you've got things you don't want like lazy procrastination no self-belief your mind also thinks that you do want those things so just teaching kids at school to say you know as i read this book everything's going in there's nowhere i'd rather be this weekend than studying my exams i love revising and everything i read is going straight in and it's staying there and when i sit the exam all the answers come out of my mind like it's google and if you say that enough, it actually becomes true. And same yes. way if you say my mind's like a sieve and I can't remember a thing, unfortunately that also becomes true. So we have a lot of choice, but, but you know, really this stuff should be taught everywhere and I'm so happy that my mission to get it into schools is just coming true. Yeah, this is, this is really good I and mean, it's so important. So when you, when you wind up talking with, let's say you have a classroom of kids in front of you, what's the very first thing you say to them? One of the very first things I say to kids, because I work with very disadvantaged children who've got, you know, no dad and never had a dad or parents who aren't interested, right up to the kids whose parents are really high flyers who think they've got to be perfect. And I would say the same thing, is your mind your cheerleader? Does your mind go, yes, you can do this, of course you can do this, you're amazing. And if not, then it should, your mind should be your cheerleader, it should be your best friend, it should be a devoted parent, it should be the teacher who believes in you. And I show them, the first thing is to show them that, how to have self-belief. And when I work with kids who go, I've got no dad or no mum and dad, and I go, you know, this that's really sad, but I'm going to show you how to be your own best friend, because without anyone believing in you, as miserable as it is, if you believe in you, that will change your life. And I recently worked with this very sad, desperate kid whose parents couldn't have cared less about him, just were not interested in him at all. In fact, they were awful to him and he had no one in his life. And I said, you know, that's really awful, but you've got you. You have got you. What do you like? He said, I just like cooking. He was about 15. And I talked about the fact that the universe gave him the gift of cooking. The universe had given him this gift of being a chef, and the universe was his mum and dad, and if he allowed it to, it would support him in being a chef. And even though his life was pretty bleak, 
that was his life now. And I always say, look, this is your life today, but it's not your life. It's just your life today. You don't have friends. You don't have money. But you're going to be an amazing chef. And within three years, at 18, maybe 19, he became one of the most successful chefs in Manchester. He's written about constantly. He's so in demand. He's predicted to be the next Jamie Oliver. Really? But that, and all he needed was extraordinary self-belief because... While it's wonderful to have other people believe in us, we know kids who everyone believes in them, except for them. Everyone believed in Heath Ledger and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and that really didn't help them that much. Everyone believed in Whitney Houston and Amy Winehouse. But when you believe in you, then you really do become a phenomenal person because other people follow your lead. Of course, it must be real. It can't be fake bravado. But when you can say... That's my gift. I'm a phenomenal chef. My gift is that I'm incredible at IT. My gift is that I'm a writer. Not very good at um, gardening, but I do have a talent for writing. When you say it in an authentic way, people believe you. And I work a lot with natural leaders. One of the things I identify in them is that they tell everyone what they're good at. They don't brag. They certainly don't embellish. They go, this is what I'm really good at. I'm not really good at anything else, but I'm so good at this. And people like that. They're very taken with surgeons to go, I'm the best in my field. Or we love teachers to go, yeah, this is the best school in the county and I'm the best English teacher in the whole of California. We don't go, how arrogant we go, I want my kid to be taught by you. Because it's very reassuring. So the thing I teach kids is reassure yourself and you'll reassure other people. Now, one of the things that I recall where I've, where I came upon you was through watching uh, Vishen Lakiani. I think I'm pronouncing that right. You are. Good. <laughs> Took some practice. Anyway, watching the video, How to Become Unfuckwithable, which yes. really got my attention with the title. I thought, I, I need to watch this thing, and I did. And the second presentation was where he spoke about you, introduced you, and what you came up with with this thing to do with the I am not enough, and yeah. I'd, I'd really like you to talk about that. Well, you know, that's another thing that I found has made me a very good therapist, and here I am telling you how good I am. I am a, an outstanding therapist, uh, but that's my gift. And I realized, too, that all my clients have three things wrong with them, only three. The first is they don't think they're enough. They don't think they're good enough, smart enough, lovable enough, interesting enough, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana and Michael Jackson and very much victims of that no matter what I've got I'm not enough and therefore although they're driven to be the most beautiful the most successful the most wealthy it gives them no pleasure because they're in a race with no finishing line at all ever and so when clients come in with a shopping list of issues I always narrow it down to look you don't think you're enough and Let's cure that. You're a shopaholic, a workaholic, a alcoholic, a bingeaholic, but that's not really, that's the presenting problem. But what lies underneath is a very powerful belief that you're not enough, which you certainly weren't born with. You, if you took a little baby home and shut it in a cupboard, it will scream the house down for at least two or three days because its belief is, well, who's coming to take care of me because I deserve that and I'm worth it. 
So I always look at where clients bought into I'm not enough and then I get rid of that with them. And it changes their entire life because once you know that you're enough, everyone else knows it too. And you know, of course, I work with these sweet girls who spend all their time to make, try to make some idiot boy like them. Well, these boys who try to make some girl who's not interested like them or older people who try so hard to make their boss or their colleagues like them. I go, look, why don't you put the energy into liking you because then everybody else will like you anyway. Don't try to make some boy like you by buying him stuff and pleasing him and don't try to make some girl like you by giving her all your money and driving her everywhere. Like yourself enough to say no. And when you know you're enough, you won't do that stuff. And so um, its strength really is in its simplicity. When you absolutely know that you're enough, the relief of not having to try to prove it to anyone else because you know it already and people say, well, if I know I'm enough, don't I just lie on the couch and eat potato chips? No. <laughs> Actually, when you know you're enough, you think, well, I deserve. I deserve a promotion. I deserve more than this. I deserve a fuller life because I know I'm worth it. And that's when you get off the couch and start to pursue your dreams with this unshakable, unwavering belief that I can do this. Yeah. I mean, I you know, my life, when I was at school, I was going to be a nanny. I mean, I thought I couldn't do anything. I couldn't have even imagined the life I have now, the books, you know, speaking to people all over the world, the talks, the schools. But no one did that for me. I had to begin to believe in myself. And, of course, the more you do it, the easier it is. The easier it is, the more you do it. And then it stops being what you do, and it becomes who you are. Yeah, I like very much what... Uh Vishen was uh, talking about uh, when he did that presentation and introduced you and he said, you know, like the cure that she's talking about involves a, a tube of lipstick and, and a mirror and, and he says, there's nothing kinky about it. And, yeah. uh, and I'd like you just to talk about that briefly if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I get all of my clients to write I'm enough on their mirrors and lipstick or eyeliner or permanent marker. I get them to put it on their fridge and fridge magnets. I have them put it on their screensaver. I have them use a combination of that and, of course, letters and squiggles as their password. So every day they're typing out that word, I'm enough. And I get them to really let in because I understood something very early on in therapy and that is the common denominator of all of our emotional issues is a belief that I'm not enough. The common source of all the problems that we have, the emotional problems are I'm not enough. And so by changing that to I am enough and I always have and I always will be, you, you're fixing every emotional issue at its source. So rather than a therapist having a client come with a shopping list, you know, I binge eat and then I binge drink and then I spend too much and then I can't get off the couch and then my work's substandard and then I fight with my husband. Rather than saying, well, let, we'll do one of those every month until you're better. I don't, I go, look, these aren't even important. They're just, it's like peeling away an onion. These are just layers. The real issue you have is that you don't feel good enough that's why you bought, eat, binge, because you need more. It's why you hoard or 
shop because you need more, because you feel not enough, because you're empty inside. But we're going to fill that with enough mass, and you won't need to do any of that. And all my clients say, wow, those three words, you know, they changed my entire life. And even my, you know, when my cable guy came to fix my cable, he asked me why I had enough written all over my mirrors, and I told him. When he came back, he said, I put that all over my house. He said, what's amazing is it's changed my children. My plumber actually went home and came back and said, you know, do you think I could write that on everyone's mirror when I'm fixing their toilets? I went, well, probably not, maybe one day. Because so, it <laughs> changed me, it changed my son, it even changed my wife who was going through the menopause and was so sad and now she seems to be blissfully happy. So um, I love I'm Enough because its strength is in its simplicity. If you write on your mirror, I'm a rock star, or I'm a goddess, or I'm a perfect, and your mind goes, but you're not really a rock star because your car is 10 years old and you rent this apartment. You're not really a goddess because you've got cellulite. But when you say I'm enough, it just goes, of course. That's how you came onto the planet, and that's how you'll leave it. And it's a wonderful thing because your mind won't argue with enoughness because that's how we start off, knowing we're enough. And then somehow it gets conditioned out of us because of life circumstances and we yeah, have, yeah. It's, not, it's not even somehow, you know, when I was taking my little girl into school when she was five, I was holding her hand and that's when she went, Mommy, you see that little boy? He can write his name in a box and I can't do that. I said, darling, his name is Sam and your name is Phaedra and Sam is just an S and an A and an M. But your name, the P, goes down and the H goes up and it's got an A and an E and a D. And when you're 10, everyone in the world can write their name in a box. Right now, you're five. Who cares? You're a brilliant artist. But that's what schools do. They start to pitch kids. You know, they give a prize. And what about the kid that never gets a prize? Because they're not rewarding effort. They're rewarding achievement. So the smart kids get all the prizes, but they don't have any effort in. You know, they have all these beauty contests, which make me just want to pull my hair out because they're rewarding something so superficial. And it's very easy for little girls and boys from three onwards to start thinking, well, I'm not enough because my mum says, why can't you be good like your brother? Why yes. can't you be quiet like your sister? Look at your cousin, how nicely he eats. Look at your brother getting straight A's, then they go to school and the teachers go, oh, your sister was so much better than you. Ouch. And, you know, teachers and babysitters, well, you know, my dad was a wonderful teacher, but they do so much damage. I mean, every day I have clients who say, when I went to school, my teacher said in front of the class, oh, the brains ran out at you. And sometimes they say awful things, and some parents do too, and, and definitely babysitters and... And some people do it in a really, they mean well. They say things like, well, if you don't behave, I'm going to send you back to the orphanage. Or if right. you're not good, I'm going to swap you for another child without understanding what that does. Or, you know, I've seen so many clients whose mother would literally pack a bag, put like, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back, thinking that was a way to get kids to conform. It just terrifies them to think, oh, my God, if you're leaving, I'm not enough. And yeah. you see, children idealize their parents. So if you 
work out at four that your mum's an alcoholic or your dad's mentally ill or your mum's so desperately lonely that she's going to bring a different guy home every month because she can't stand to be on her own and she thinks she's helping find a dad for you. Once children work out that there's something wrong with a parent, that's so terrifying for a child because our survival as children is linked to one thing. Do my parents like me? Do they love me? If they love me, I'll make it. And so all children decide this. My life's not great. It's my fault. There's something wrong with me. So I'm going to be nicer, kinder, better, good, smarter. And we try to make parents who can't love us properly for all kinds of reasons love us more when it's not our fault and then it doesn't work and then children buy into, oh, I'm just not enough. My dad left. Well, if he loved couldn't have left. I mean, that was Diana's hope. My mother left when I was four. If my mother loved me, how could she leave? Well, she couldn't have loved me. What does that mean? There's only one conclusion. I'm not lovable. I'm not lovable enough. And, you know, it's so heartbreaking when you see these people who come in and they've really bought into this in the age of three. It's like so children who are adopted have that belief. I know you keep saying my mum loved me. If she really loved me, she wouldn't have given me away. Yeah, now, you know, you'd mentioned that there were three major problems, or three common problems, I think, yeah. to do with each. The only three, yeah. Yeah, so there was a not enough. What, what were the other two? The second one is a very interesting one, which is I want something but I already know it's not available. For instance, I want to be healthy, but I know I've got the depressive gene and I can't get cured. I want to find love, but I know really I'm so unlovable. Whoever loves me will leave me. I want to have a great career, but everyone in my family was a blue-collar worker and I'm, I know I'm not smart enough to pull it off. So it's this belief that what I want is actually not available. I want a baby, but I'm infertile. I want love, but I'm not lovable. I want health, but my whole family is depressed. Or, And so we, it's this like a dog chasing its tail because my clients want something so much, but they have a huge block. It's not available. Even if I find a great guy, he'll leave me. He'll run off with my friends. Even if I have a baby, I'll be a terrible parent because that's what my mom was. Self-fulfilling so prophecy. Yeah, self-fulfilling. If I get a great job, I just get fired. And so they block themselves. And the third one, which is really interesting, is this belief that I'm different to everyone else. Because I'm different, I can't have what I want. I want love, but I'm too different. So I'll always get rejected. And so... Because when we're born, we only have two driving needs, which is find connection and avoid rejection. People who feel they're different actually can't find connection and tend to set themselves up for reject rejection. So those three things, I'm not enough. Whatever I want in life, it's not available to me. It never really will be. And I'm different, so I can't connect. Are really the only problems that all of my clients have. For instance, I've never met an addict in my entire life, and I've met thousands of addicts who ever believe that they're enough. That's why people like to go to AA, because alcoholics feel different to everyone else, and they think they're the only ones who sold their kids' doll's house to buy drink or drugs. When they find another one, they do, they went, oh my God, 
thank God someone else is as bad as me and there's that connection. Mm -hmm. So how does that help them recover or does it make it worse? Oh no, it makes it much better. First of all, I tell everyone the truth. Look, you know what your greatest fear in the world is? Being different. That's the greatest fear because if our need is to be connected and not rejected, then we must fear being different because that's how we get rejected. And if you, I say to all my clients, if you stopped 100 people in the streets, what do you fear? They're being different. I go, well, let, there you go then. If the fear of being different means you're the same as everyone in the world because it's everyone's greatest fear. You know, if someone said you're going to amputate your leg, I'm really sorry, go, I don't want that because I want to be the same as everyone else. You know, when we see that with children, when you send a rich kid to a poor school or a poor kid to a rich school or the only kid with braces or red hair or glasses and they have a miserable time because they're different. But you're not different. The very fact that you fear being different means you're the same as everyone. When clients tell me that love isn't available because it never has been, I point out that that was true then, but it, it will never be true again. And when clients reveal that their greatest fears are not enough, I simply make them know that they are. And so because I'm fixing people's real issues at its very core, they don't just fix that issue, they, feel, they fix all the offshoots of it too. And that's why it's rapid transformational therapy, because it fixes people at the very root, at the very heart of their issues. And they really feel so much better, not just for a little while, but forever. Yeah, it's really it's it's quite interesting because when when I first came across your your presentation your video it it really struck me very quickly because um, of course I I came from that background too where I was repeatedly told that I wasn't enough and worse than that that I would never mount anything that blah 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 you know the 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 usual stories that that one hears if you come from a background where you're told you're not enough and uh, the various manifestations of that and then to realize oh wait a second what if what I've been told is not true and then also going through some of your other courses where you teach people this thing called self-praise I found that really interesting yeah praise is so amazing you know there's nothing in the world that will boost your self-esteem like praise instead of waiting someone else to praise you you have to praise yourself you have to look at what I call the missing what's the missing piece what did I always want to hear did I want to hear that I was a favorite did I want to hear that I was a great kid that was a gift to my parents even though my parents are now dead and are never going to tell me it doesn't matter you just tell yourself what it is that you most wanted to hear and it, it has the most extraordinary effects on you because praise builds people and criticism withers them. But self-praise and actually self-criticism have much more of an impact on you than the praise of others because your mind knows when other people praise you or pretty you have an agenda. I'm going to say something really nice because I want to borrow some money. I'm going to say that you're the best yeah I've ever had in the world and I'm going to ask you to work late. I'm going to put you down because I want you to feel bad about yourself. So there's an agenda, but when we praise or criticize ourselves, there's no agenda. And therefore it goes right in. And that's why praising yourself is so wonderful, because it fills you up and it never goes away. And we should really be teaching kids every day to say things like, I like myself, 
I'm a smart kid, I'm good at certain things, people like me. You know, we spend so long learning to teach kids Latin. I mean, why bother? Why not teach them self-belief? It will give them so much more in life. And, you know, a lot of parents do that. They, they have this little ritual. They go, what did you do today that was great? And tell me what was what's good about you. And, you know, I used to play a little game with my daughter called How Many People Love Fader. And we'd start with her fingers. It'd be mummy, daddy, grandma, granddad. And we'd always run out of fingers. And we'd have to go to the toes. And we'd have to go to mummy's fingers. And she loved that game. You know, I was a single parent. It was just me and her. But I loved every day opportunity to remind her of how much love was available to her because I see so many clients who really think it isn't and you know parents should be taught all this stuff you know how to fill your kids up with self and make them unfuckable too because it doesn't make kids arrogant it makes them happy and bullying would almost disappear if we could bring children up with a sense of themselves yeah, bullying itself is an, an entirely other issue. And yeah, and bullies never, yeah, bullies never think that they're enough. Bullies have a horrible belief that they're not enough and they need everyone else to feel as miserable as they feel. You know, that could very well be right. I, I don't know that uh, from my own experience. I certainly encountered more bullies than I would like to count, although not in recent years and partly because of the different... Um, therapies that I went through, which cured much of that in my life. Because you, yeah, when you had those therapies, you got a very strong sense of self, and bullies won't go after kids with a strong sense of self any more than men who hit women would pick a really strong, powerful, self-possessed woman. Men who hit women pick women that they know feel bad about themselves, and then they chip away at them and make them feel worse. But happy children don't bully. You know, one of my clients, who I actually don't know her, but she wrote to me and said, you know, I've been listening to I'm Enough, and I've got it written all over the house, and my little girl is only seven. The teacher called me in and said, you know, they had a new kid in school who, of course, was being bullied because there's that word. She was different. She was new. She had different acts, and she didn't fit in, and all the girls were being very mean, and when she followed them around the playground, they'd look around and go, you are dog. And this little seven-year-old girl went up to the whole group and said, look, we're all enough. We're all enough to let her join. And then she went and said, you're enough, then you can come and join our group. And the teacher was so impressed that at seven, she'd got this enoughness. You're only trying to shut her out because you don't feel enough. And if you feel you're enough, then we're enough to have room for another friend. And I love yeah. that, that at seven, she got it all sorted out. Well, for, you know, the the nice thing about being a child and being around really supportive people is if you get the right messages right away and you internalize it, life becomes much simpler and, and better. But if you get the wrong messages or you get negative messages, well, of course, the reverse will happen. Well, yeah, we know that you can, you can make an, an Islamic fundamentalist of a child at four if you give them those messages. You can also make a peace-loving vegan child if you give them messages. I mean, that's why the Catholic Church says, give me a child till five and I'll have him for the rest of my life because they understand how easy it is to manipulate the minds of very small children. Yes, absolutely. So one thing that's really clear 
is you and I, we could, we could talk about all sorts of things. We could explore many things together, and I would like to have the opportunity to, to do so with you again. But we're getting close to the time that I need to wrap this up for today. And for the people who are listening, what are the best ways to get in contact with you? Oh, well, very easy. If you just go to marissapeer.com, that's M-A-R-I-S-A-P-E-E-R.com, you can find everything about you. You can go to rapidtransformationaltherapy.com, and we're always giving away free downloads and free CDs and free programs. So sign up, and I'm sure we can send you some really nice um, free personal development stuff to get you started. Yeah, and from my own experience being on your site, I can definitely attest to the value of what's been on there because I've downloaded a, a number of your free courses, I've gone through the, the videos, uh, which is why I was able to talk about some of this, uh, because they were on your site and I accessed them. So, um, yeah, it's really good information, and for those of you who are listening, I highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, well, you know, it's so much, it's so easy to feel better. It sounds a bit Pollyanna, but it's actually really easy, you know, to go from a horrible life to a blissful life if you take charge of, you know, how you talk to yourself. I mean, I didn't have a privileged beginning, but I certainly have an amazing life now. But that wasn't because I was born to that. It's because I learnt it and then I, I put it into myself and I... I see so many of my own patients who have a 360-degree turnaround, and they just they just look different, they act different, they become blissfully happy, because instead of looking for someone else to fix them, they understand it's just these little adjustments in how you think and talk, but if you do it properly, the effect it has on you is out of all proportion to the tiny adjustments you make. The adjustments are tiny, but the changes are outstanding and phenomenal. I, I would agree. Like I said, I was very surprised when I first encountered your material. Good. So, for those of you who have been listening, my guest today has been Marissa Peer. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm one of the Thought Hackers, and we will speak to you next time. You've been listening to the Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts.